Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. had a vision for a beloved community, a global family marked by equality, justice, and brotherly fellowship. This is a much more demanding vision than mere coexistence or even what we sometimes call reconciliation in the church. The beloved community demands sacrifice and dismantling inequitable systems and giving voice to the marginalized. In this series, From Redeemer City to City, we're talking with pastors and Christian leaders who have experienced building beloved community in and through the local church. We hope these conversations expand your imagination for what holistic ministry can look like in your city. And if you like what you hear, you can find more from these contributors and many others at RedeemerCityToCity.com slash resources. Thanks for listening. In this episode, I'm speaking with my friend and colleague, Dr. Michael Carrion, Vice President of Church Planting and Leadership Development at City to City, New York. The focus of our conversation is why protest, confession, repentance, and the pursuit of justice are all essential ingredients for the development of the beloved community, the unified and reconciled body of Christ. It's a rich and rewarding conversation. And if you listen all the way to the end, you'll hear the origin story of our friendship, which involves a very awkward interaction at a diversity training workshop. So thank you for listening. And uh, I think you're going to appreciate this a lot. Hey, Mike Carrion, it's good to see you again. Hey, good to be seen again, uh, <laughs> Dr. O'Brien. Thank you once again for the invitation. Always an honor to pontificate, apologize. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the last time we talked, it was because we were trying to figure out what to do with a global pandemic. And uh, this time yeah. we're talking about racial justice and social upheaval about policing. And uh, I wonder if maybe you and I could just talk sometime when there's not a major catastrophe going on or, yeah. <laughs> or is this our life now? <laughs> is this our, well, you know. uh, all right. Well, hey, I, um, I'm, I'm excited to talk about uh, talk today with you. We're in the, a, a new series, Building Beloved Community. Um, we're borrowing that term from the vision that of Dr. Martin Luther King. We've talked with Ren Cabente, who um, talked about his experience in the um, prayerful protest marches here in the city in New York. Uh, we talked with Danae and Ramon Pierre about being a, um, a, a multiracial family and a multiracial church and what it means to be minority leaders at a difficult time like this and leading their congregation. Um, and I'm excited to talk with you because we, uh, even though you probably didn't see me, but I saw you at a few of these marches, because you were up on a ladder with a bullhorn and uh, I was uh, out on the street with the rest of the folks. But the only live church services I've been to since March were these, <laughs> these marches, right? One in Brooklyn, one in Washington Heights. and um, and so, yeah, so I've, I've, you know, had, had some experiences, the whole country has had some experiences and um, I'm excited to be able to unpack some of this with you. So thanks Great. for the time. Well, honored. And I love the way you see, uh, or you identify and categorize the PMA Prayerful March Act movement as a mobile church service. That's what you just stated. I think, and I want to say how powerful is that? Because that's exactly what they're intended to be. It is the center of evangelization because we're evangelizing as we're making the church known, uh, separate from the world in the sense that we are protesting and not parading. There's a difference between a parade and a protest. Mm. Prayerfully protesting and speaking truth 
to justice, uh, speak truth to power against injustice, and to say that we are praying, we are lamenting, and we are owning the sin of our city and its abdication and responsibility in uh, being just and uh, giving dignity to African Americans and others, because the conversation is not just one that's Afro-American centric, but also any other outside of the majority culture uh, fall into that same category, though the narrative tends to be constructed into a black and white only narrative. I had the same conversation with a group of professors on a panel, and I stated the same thing. We have to broaden the narrative, broaden the conversation, because uh, the same way when, e when Israel was being uh, was was moving from Egypt, the foreigners that were with the Egyptians, right, with, with the uh, Israelites coming out of Egypt, it wasn't just the nation of Israel. There were others. Ethiopia right. was in that same. Yeah. So same sort of paradigm here. And the, Israel's deliverance from Egypt, these are the nations that are also subjugated to the tyranny of Pharaoh in Egypt, same exact thing with the majority culture. And not putting it in the same category as, but we cannot deny 400 years of genocide, slavery, even justified by Christianity in the history of the United States. So all of that as a prayerful protest uh, to speak against that, that history, that heritage, and then to say, no, um, black lives do matter because all life matters. People are in the image of God and we praise the Lord for the church that has been coming together uh, to do these protests, amen. Amen. Well, and you know, it's interesting to me, the, the news cycles shift all around, right? So like right now, everybody seems to be looking at Portland because there's a bunch of moms that are, you know, the, what do they call the wall of moms or something like that. And yeah, something to pr protecting protesters and all that. But a lot of the footage of marches and bunches of cities and all that has kind of tapered off in the news. Yeah. But these prayerful protests are still going on in New York City. Oh. Whether, they're, whether they're getting footage or not, they're getting coverage or not, they're still happening. What I've appreciated about being part of and also witnessing it is that it was not a, uh, like the church tacking something on to the broader, you know, secular movement or something. Because like a lot of that activity has died down and the church is still in the street. Um, and so I just, I found that really compelling. I also found it, to be honest, uh, it was strange for two reasons. One, because the first March in Brooklyn, it was the first time I'd been around any person that I wasn't related to, you know, in like, in like two months, you know, so it's just, it was strange to be in public again. Um, yeah. But it also was not a part of my Christianity that I came up with to demonstrate my faith in this way. Yeah. And I can remember in the late 80s, early 90s, can remember like holding a sign on the side of the highway on sanctity of human life Sunday or something like that, but, but never, yeah, yeah, yeah. never like blocking traffic, never causing an interruption, you know, never, and certainly never over issues like policing or social justice and those kinds of things. And so I suspect that a lot of uh, white evangelicals are having a similar experience to mine, which is to say in my gut, I feel like this is the right thing to be a, a part of but there's nothing in my heritage or training or whatever that kind of equips me to understand how marching in the street can somehow be a demonstration of my faith. I wonder if you could tell us how the Christian traditions that you have been a part of have, have kind of helped hold together these things that for many white Christians are separate, like evangelism and discipleship and justice, seeking justice and the sort of public demonstration um, 
yeah, how do those things fit together for you? Absolutely. Well, let me just give some historical. I mean, because so the listener doesn't know, can't see us. We're talking. We can see each other, but they don't know who they're talking to. I am a person of Afro-Latino heritage. And so my family migrated here. Half of my family migrated on my father's side from Manati, Puerto Rico, the Caribbean. Uh, they're from the island of Puerto Rico. And then the other side of my family are African-American. And so they come from the Carolinas and in uh, the South. And so I am I'm comprised of two oppressed people groups. Right? So <laughs> God has had mercy on me, right? Anyway, so uh, I, growing up in, in East Harlem, Spanish Harlem, in the barrio, in the 70s, I was a good Catholic boy. Went to St. Paul's Catholic Church on 118 in Lexington. I attended the St. Paul's Catholic School. Father Byrne and uh, Brother Reginald were the educators, were the pastors, and, and, and married my parents, knew my, my grandmother, my grandmother, just, I was, everything was Catholic. And so, but even in the space of uh, a Catholic community, uh, I was exposed in my journey to who was called the Young Lords. Young Lords were a group of uh, Puerto Ricans in Spanish Harlem who started to protest uh, the, the issues and the social ills that were being um, allowed and not addressed within uh, Spanish Harlem. Uh, the Young Lords were started by Jose Chacha Jimenez and many, many, uh, the, you know, you, they could be likened to the Puerto Rican version of the Black Panthers uh in the sense that they they took all the garbage that the city was refusing to pick up in our communities and keeping uh poor people really in unhealthy situations they put all of the garbage in the middle of the street this is the earliest memories i have all of this garbage in the middle of the street in my community and being set on fire and then the police and then the news mm. and then people started to the interruption of burning garbage in my community sounded a broader alarm that served, that transcended the social context, the social reality of our poverty, of our oppression, because now people had to pay attention because the city was on fire, mm. literally. So then now they start to pick up the garbage. The next issue was poverty, uh, health issue, hunger resourcing, and the Young Lords are, are known for taking over Harlem Hospital uh, in the 70s and uh, accosting uh, the Presbyterian Church on 111th Street in Lexington. It was the only church uh, that was uh, vibrant at that time. Uh, they were using St. Paul's. Father Byrne uh, was, uh, was, a, uh, was an advocate for the Young Lords. He saw uh, and, and, and marched with them and protested with them and counseled them. Um, and, um, and I didn't find this out two years later, uh, how close he was to the Young Lords until I saw him on a video clip. And I said, that's my, that was my priest, you know? <laughs> and uh, anyway, long story short, fast forward. So protest and the interruption of systems because of oppression, oppressive realities was something that I was exposed to very early in my faith walking journey. Because I had a priest in the Catholic church who supported these these young millennials at the time, well, they were what we call them millennials today, but they were the millennials millennials of their time in the seventies, and they were just saying, you, "It's not right for us not to have access to health care. It's not right for us to have garbage in our communities to the point where we are suffering and rat infestation. It's not right for us not to have food and jobs and so on and so forth." Anyway, the young lords produced many prophetic Latino Caribbean leaders throughout the metro and uh, re region. So then I, I continued to grow up, and then I. I moved to the Bronx with my parents, and then I have my conversion experience 
and this this Baptist preacher came in and preached me into the kingdom. <laughs> I, I then uh, have my own social ills growing up, wind up in Teen Challenge, uh, started by David Wilkerson, then after that, uh, aspiring Assemblies of God minister. And uh, it was there that I started to uh, attend Bible college and then uh, seminary and then did post-grad work. And so, but throughout that journey, I've always been exposed to uh, because of my, uh, because of who I am as a person of color, um, I have been exposed to um, these outbursts, if you will, um, within the faith streams, because people were saying enough is enough. We cannot deal with this. Somebody's got to say something, speak truth to power. So I, I think I've been formed into this sort of prophetic thread uh, from the onset, uh, God's providence in my life. So how do I reconcile to your question evangelism, discipleship, uh, within, my, within, within, my, within my understanding. I, I landed in a Reformed denomination called the Evangelical Covenant Church. And uh, they, are, they are not leftists, uh, but they are much more progressive than conservative. And so they are very open and they deal with a center set theology, uh, which says we want to focus more on what brings us together than what separates us but they are very social justice conscious. And so they are, once again, not liberal, aware. They have a consciousness and they, 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 they have a hermeneutic and, and teach within their ethos, culture, and training and covenant theology that the gospel is justice and justice is the gospel because he came to die for all. And what does all mean? Everyone. Uh, and that every system has fallen and that every system needs redeeming. And when the church becomes comfortable within the system or the status quo, then the church itself needs redemption because it's now bowed down to something uh, it was not created or intended to bow down to and becomes an idol. And I think when I think about Western Christianity and I think about evangelism, uh, I, I think that we have embraced a sort of status quo, especially of our brothers and sisters in the majority culture, dominant culture. Um, like you just stated this, and, 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 I, and I totally understand what you're saying. Uh, because there's so many uh, majority culture pastor friends that I have, they're saying, but why do they got to stop in the middle of the highway? <laughs> why do they got to turn around and they got to stop? And, 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 you know, now now they're protesting, and now it's a never-ending protesting, and now everything is about race. And, and how come how come we just can't, you know, go straight to reconciliation? Why can't we all just get along? I said, well, you got to take historical context into consideration. You've got you to take 400 years of genocide into consideration. You've got to take into consideration the systems that have been intentionally designed and put in place, right, to keep certain people at the margins or certain groups at the margins. Everyone does not have equal access to resource. Everyone does not have equal access uh, to justice within the judicial system itself, which says that you are innocent until proven guilty in this country. Uh, but for the African-American man, that, that doesn't seem too truthful or, or real when you look at mass incarceration. Uh, when I think of the late uh, father of black liberation theology, now I'm Orthodox, and look at my citation, <laughs> Dr. James Cohen. So that in itself is paradoxical for the reformed among us, right? Solideo Gloria. But for the, for the covenanter, for the person that's coming out of the covenant, training camp, that's, a, that, that's something to be considered. Or, or Gustavo Guterres or Paulo Ferrell or, you know, works like, 
like pedagogy of the oppressed or, you know, um, that might have had some dealings with Marxism, but are not Marxism. And I think that we have taken historical constructs out of South America, misappropriated them into, I think, what is an awakening that's happening within the church now that is not just affecting brown and black churches, but I even see majority culture coming out and responding to the plight of the margins and responding to the injustices of Breonna Taylor, Trayvon Martin, Eric Gardner, George Floyd. So when I look at someone saying and complaining, man, but why do they got to stop the highway? Well, let's talk about an imagery, the highway of somebody's life. And you send your son to school and your son is profiled. And then your son is shot on the way to the store to buy a, a glass of iced tea and a bag of Skittles. You send him to the store. Go ahead, Trayvon. Go to the store. That life is put on hold. And everyone that's attached to that young boy is now put on hold, right? Uh, when you look at George Floyd, the entire, his, the entire Floyd family is put on hold. That, in, that community is put on hold. That, 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 the, the, the margin space in that state is put on hold. But I find it insensitive and aloof when I hear majority culture people say, but you know, I, I get that we need to have justice, but why do this? You're only taking into consideration your experience when you make statements like that. You're only articulating your reality as a majority culture with privilege, with economic solvency, having been supported and maybe educated and, and what have you, and never ever having to deal with someone looking at you right differently because of the color of your skin i think that we need to reconcile uh and i think true contextualization only happens when we can walk in the same space uh of the persons we're trying to uh, bring forth the gospel preach the gospel to i hope that makes sense brandon yeah absolutely well and it's uh it's interesting that you mentioned um james cone because i have been reading some uh cone myself lately just finished um uh, Martin and Malcolm in America, which yes, is, yes, yes. You know, kind of profiles both, uh, both Martin yeah, King yeah. and Malcolm X and how they've, you know, their, their cultural contexts are very different. In their yes, that's right. uh, and so they have very different, and one is uh, Muslim, one was Christian, and so they have very different perspectives on a lot of things. One was middle class, one was very impoverished. Yep. That's yep. right. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. One's sort of Southern Jim Crow, one's Northern ghetto, you know, so this yep. is immensely interesting. Uh, it helps you understand the disagreements in their approach because they're really not arguing against this exactly the same things, right? There's a theme of white supremacy and oppression, but they're not, they're really not addressing exactly the same social issues. But the, what Cohn argues is that by the end of their life, they're beginning to kind of merge a little more toward each other. Right. Yes. And, um, and I was struck by the whole thing. I'm now about two thirds of the way through the cross and the lynching tree, uh, which is just, astounding but the reason i mention all this is because uh cone is from arkansas which is my home state uh he was is probably about my grandparents age um was so he's he's passed he about three years ago yeah, yeah yeah uh but he's from bearden arkansas which is not far from camden arkansas which is where my granddaddy worked for like 50 years right and as i'm reading cone describe his life in bearden arkansas and thinking about the life as my grandparents described in that very similar region they're they're vastly different experiences they're not they're not 
kind of different. They're vastly different. Vastly right? different. Yeah. And so I think one of the things that's helpful is to recognize that, um, uh, yeah, that you're right, that it is, it is um, I think white Christians are, we're very nervous about the disruption of protest. We're very nervous about the sort of social disruption in part because we, we can, we can make it most of our lives without ever feeling social disruption, right? And that at some point what happens with these events is that the disruption that another group of people feels all the time is made unavoidable, unavoidable to us. Uh, and it's really uncomfortable. It doesn't mean it, it is, we like to then say it's wrong for you to do that to us, right? <laughs> for yeah. you to make us uncomfortable. Um, but I think that it's, it's jarring um, to have your life put on hold by something else, but it's actually not a new experience for a lot of people, right? Like that's the, that's the, that's the point, um, I guess at some level. And so what I think is interesting is Malcolm and Martin both kind of agree on this at some level that reconciliation is attractive to white people because it, it, it doesn't require, it's just, it's sort of like letting marginalized people into the space that I've always inhabited and doesn't really cost me anything. Right. Exactly. And so I've heard increasingly in New York City from pastors and some others and other places in America, especially here, more and more people of color saying, let's put a pause on reconciliation talk and let's talk about justice. And when we've achieved justice or, or maybe it doesn't have to be completely achieved, but once we have done work for justice, then we'll talk about reconciliation. And I think that's a hard word to hear for um for majority culture christians though we will instinctively I, I not that i speak for all white people but that uh if they're like me they might say um yeah but the gospel is the gospel of reconciliation and so how do we just abandon this thing that the bible is clearly for right mm. yeah what, what's your take on that sense of like we've talked about reconciliation I think in churches, probably for the last 30 years, Promise Keepers talked about racial reconciliation. We've had the sort of multi-ethnic church movement in the yeah. early 2000s, and this reconciliation is a language. There's a shift from that to justice language. It's, yeah. It can be jarring for people, but yeah. what is, your, is that a good shift? Is it a bad shift? Is it a necessary shift? What, what's your take on that? I think that the, the, the uh, I think it all comes to what historically reconciliation is defined as from the margins is reconciliation means that you continue to subjugate me to your every whim and to the systems that you've initially put in, in play to hold me back, keep me out, lock me out, abuse me, kill me, X, Y, Z. Because if that's what biblical reconciliation is to you, that's not our hermeneutic. That's not the hermeneutic that I embrace. And I, I'm not speaking for all black people. There are variations of blackness and Afro-Latinoness has its own category within the broader spectrum of other especially within the United States. Well, the, the narrative um, proper tends to be just black and white. There's a whole lot of other space that's not even addressed that at some point we have to address in the journey as demographics continue to shift within the next century, 50 years, 30 years, and what have you. But when I turn around and I say, let's not, let's not talk about reconciliation yet, what I'm saying is, and you need to understand that the assumptions that would, 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 would form that sentence in my mouth are that we've got a reconciliation before and nothing has changed. We've talked about racism for 50, 60, 70 years. We marched before and nothing has changed. 
people have died. They're there in 2020 across the country, at least seven or eight lynchings, black people hanging from trees in 2020. If that is, and that is reemerging in different places. Um, uh, and we've talked about it before. Lynching is illegal, right? I mean, murder is illegal. It should be. And when we talk about community reconciliation and we talk about a militarized uh, law enforcement that does not see community members of color as community members, but rather as criminals, as rapists, as XYZ, whatever the other category, and they engage as such by profiling, by intentionally uh, uh, incarcerating, uh, by writing laws that are almost impossible to navigate through. And what do I mean by that? Uh, when we put together a law, or rather when, a, let's put it this way, a 15-year-old African-American goes before the judicial system on a marijuana charge, um, and, and, and then they are automatically given in the circuit court five years probation. You're 15 years old, and it's expected that you don't get into any, other, any more trouble within five years of that probation, according to the courts. What 15-year-old you know is not going to get into any trouble until they're 20 years old? That, that, yeah. that, that person doesn't exist on planet Earth in any generation <laughs> in human civilization. There's a kid. The kid's going to do something else. Right. And you see that pattern of heavier hands uh, when it comes to the court system, especially within the urban pockets. And so when we talk about reconciliation, Dr. Cohn also states in his, and you're reading it, you said you're two-thirds through it, uh, he says, we no longer lynch black men because... There was no profit in that, but we not throw them into a cell. We can make money and generations upon generations upon generations. So what does reconciliation mean to majority culture? And then what does it mean to those on the margins? Reconciliation on the margins, may, we may be hearing and stating, guess what? Reconciliation to you and your hermeneutic is that I, I play nice. I don't get aggressive. I don't protest. You continue to oppress me. You continue to keep me illiterate. You continue to hold me back. You continue to lock me up. So if that's what reconciliation means, that you're comfortable and I stay in a place of discomfort, that's not the gospel. That's not the good news. If the good news is not good for me who, who, who's on the margins, then it's not, if it's not for the poor, if it's not for the broken, if it's not for the, then it's not good news at all. And there's a lot of people who have stated that. And so what does reconciliation mean? To the dominant culture, it means something. Let's get us, and then we turn and we put gospel language on it. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, Brandon, let's be very frank about this. <laughs> the, the white evangelical church has said, let us just reconcile. But you know, you go on, uh, you have the dominant culture, the dominant place at the table. And we still don't, we're not at the table. And if it's one thing that I've learned, Invitation to the table with our representation at the table is hypocrisy. Mm. It's hypocrisy. So you may be saying verbally, let's reconcile, but reconcil reconciliation only comes with one party owning their sin against the other party and apologizing, repenting, and turning from that. Romans 5, right? Uh, what true reconciliation is, gospel-centered reconciliation is, when you look in the backdrop of that history, so it's not that people of color don't want to reconcile. Yeah. And once you own it, you can leave it. The, you can choose to repent from it and That's leave right. it there. And we can walk in community and reconciliation. Yeah. You know, as, as you were saying that, I think an objection that someone will 
email us <laughs> or will sound in their head, right? Is that this is, you're talking about guilt. You're talking about making me feel bad for things that my great, 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 great grandparents did. And that, you know, there's a sort of knee jerk reaction to self-preservation in these conversations. And I, I, I thought while you're talking of James chapter five, 16, that says, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. And I think one of the deficiencies for white Christians is that we are, we are discipled and, um, and it's deeply impressed on us to confess our impure sexual thoughts to, uh, to confess our anger, to confess, you know, a certain range of sins, but it is not in our discipleship to confess the kinds of social sins that we're a part of. And what I hear you calling us to is not to go, you know, flog ourselves on the back and feel guilty and to do whatever, but to recognize the complicity in these sins and then to do what James five says, confess these sins to one another, pray for one another, and then we can be healed, right? That's the movement from maybe from justice to reconciliation that we're talking about here. Absolutely. Something to your point, when we started this conversation, you mentioned promise keepers. And I was at the the largest promise keepers gathering back in the 90s, coach. It was the first time I heard Tony Evans, Dr. Tony Evans uh, speak. And he was like a lineup speaker. Uh, he was a backup speaker for somebody that didn't show up. But I'm going to tell you, when I tell you that this brother, but coach did something who started that series. Coach turned around and it had to be maybe, uh, I don't know, thousands upon thousands of pastors there, majority white. And he says, I want to take this opportunity as the white dominant culture, as the white voice to apologize and to own. He did this. And the first promise keepers in Georgia, I'll never forget this. It was a snowstorm and we got stuck there. My hand stands up. And he had this entire stadium of white people turn to every black and brown person right now. We're going to apologize to our black brothers and sisters for the 400 years. I'm, I'm going to tell you, I'm beautiful. And, I, I, and you would think that that would, man, but that's so superficial. No, it wasn't superficial. I looked at every black man and brown man in that, and these people coming up who don't even know me, apologizing, apologizing. You know, I think of Second Chronicles, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear. That's what coach was leading, majority culture you know, in the Promise Keeper movement. Now, the Promise Keepers, they, I don't know what happened over the years, you know, but I'm going to tell you, I was there in the heyday service, and it changed me forever. It changed from that moment on. I had a lot more grace for white folks than I, than I had up until that moment because somebody owned it. Somebody who had nothing to do with what happened apologized to my people have something against your people, and I apologize to you for that. Please forgive me. Can I hug you, brother? Can I hug you, brother? Can I touch you? And, and you, it's tears of, of, of true repentance for something they've never done. I don't think that confession necessarily has to happen from the person who committed the infraction. But ownership it is a biblical motif in the Old Testament. Like I decided, in the, if my people, plurality, not one person, if my people will turn from their wicked ways and humble themselves and pray, then, listen, there's a condition, then, that, that then hasn't happened yet, right? It hasn't happened yet. Um, or it's happened in small pockets. 
Um, and, and when and when people start to call out the issues and say no, no reconciliation, justice, justice is owning. I robbed you of a future. I robbed you of your land. I robbed you. I dislocated you from the blessing that God had intended from you. My people did that to your people. Forgive me. Forgive my people. That's powerful. You can't get more gospel-centered than that, in my opinion. In my opinion. And so, um, yeah, there's something about confession and healing, ownership, and true repentance is turning away from sin, not doing a 360, but it's really doing a 180 and walking in the opposite direction. Our country, our church majority has yet to do the 180 to walk away from systemic ecclesial racism, even within the church. We've not walked away from it yet because we've not owned it and named it yet. I'm so thankful for this. I, uh, as I was reading Martin and Malcolm and America, I thought, Mike Carrion is my Malcolm X. And, uh, <laughs> and I was so thankful. I don't mean that in a bad way. I have been. Oh, okay. Listen, it's funny. It's funny. this is really funny. I was a deputy before this, before we went in this, in this galaxy together. Yeah. I worked for the city. I was the, uh, I had an appointment as a deputy director of vocational rehabilitation services, which just means I was supervising a whole lot of psychiatrists, therapists, and social workers dealing with thousands of special needs clients and, and other types of uh, directors. And so when you walked into my office, there were three pictures on my wall. Always a conversation. The first one was Dr. King. The second one was Obama. And then the third <laughs> one was Malcolm X. If you ask Robert Guerrero, he'll tell you. You walk into my office, he's like, yo, what's that about? Said, you know, anyway. So it was just, but I'm, I would, I'm always referred to either Malcolm or, uh, you know, X. <laughs> the first time you and I had a conversation really was during a staff diversity training event yeah. <laughs> in, in which we played this game to like illustrate privilege and you followed me around <laughs> that room and talked about the oppression inherent in the system and all this and I was like this is the most uncomfortable 15 minutes I've ever had at work. <laughs> I remember that. Oh my God. That was like the first week on the job. Too. Yeah, I think it was. <laughs> first week on the job. Man, that was almost, almost four years ago, I think. Almost four years ago. Yeah. And yeah. I, and, uh, and so I, 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 I laugh about that now, but I think it is, it is a gift to have uh, someone gently, um, forcefully, but not, not um overwhelmingly not overwhelmingly yeah. not right not overwhelmingly but but cons gently assertively reminding uh those of us who are prone to forget that this is this is not just an issue yesterday this is an issue today and if you don't if we don't confess and pray it will be an issue tomorrow but but we can we can stop we can form this beloved community by God's grace. And, uh, and so I'm very thankful for your leadership and your friendship. And, uh, and I will always enjoy telling the story about you following me with your cup of beans and, <laughs> and making me really uncomfortable. <laughs> well, I, I'm sorry. I remember you saying that like three or four times. This is you know, hey, but you know, I, I want to say, Brandon, you're a friend and I love your, you are brilliant. And I, I thank God for your role in the ministry and what you're doing. No, no, no better person among us 
could ask the challenging questions with gentleness and yet sincerity uh, as you do. I never feel as if I'm the gerbil and the spinning wheel when I talk with you. And I've had that experience because as you know, I do a lot of these sort of lectures and, and so to God be the glory. Cause there'll come a time when they don't even want to hear from me cause I'll be old school. <laughs> They're already calling me old school. Uh, but, but, uh, but I appreciate your, your witness. Thank you. You give me hope hmm. for majority culture. And I want you to know that you do. Wow. Thank don't you. take that out of the show. Don't take <laughs> okay. that out of the show. You give me hope for majority yeah. culture. Thank you. And so does, so does the Presbyterian church. I want to say that too publicly. I see something. I see God doing something in the Redeemer movement that they, they've never seen. And they are clumsy in a clumsy, uncomfortable manner, following the voice and the whisper of the Holy Spirit across the five boroughs, not staying comfortable in Manhattan, but coming to Bronx and Long Island and, and Upper West Side to seek what is the new thing that the Lord is doing. And so I, I, I praise uh, Dave Brisgrove and Abe Cho, Daniel Lee, and all of those, Joseph Yu, Chuck Armstrong, Bruce, uh, Mark Reynolds, all of those who I've seen come out of their comfort box. Even RTS, Reform Theological Seminary, Jay Harvey's come out, you, Ruth Leary, so many, so many, so many who come from this font, majority comfortable font, could have just, didn't have to even respond, have come out to be a witness if only to see what the Lord is doing, if only to see what's happening. Praise be to God for such a time as this, that we could be one holy Catholic church. Uh, and I praise God for that. And I see that. And I bear witness to that. I bear witness that the majority church is responding like it never has before. I see that. And I want to give credit for that, you know, acknowledge that. Because both sides have to acknowledge the efforts of the other side in coming together to extend grace and love and fellowship. Yeah. Amen. This is uh, always a treat. Let's do it again. Let's That's not wait till the next major <laughs> calamity. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Whatever you want, Doc. You got me. Thank you so much. God bless you. God bless you.